last Sunday, God willing, in the gym, <laughs> although it hasn't been as bad as I was afraid it was going to be, but uh, I will be glad to get back to the sanctuary. Um, our text this morning is from Romans 6, and it's just verses 6 and 7 of Romans 6. Paul is talking about dying to sin and coming alive to God through Christ, and um, we pick up kind of in the middle of that passage, Romans 6, verses 6 through 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us ourselves in your word and then you would show us yourself in your word. We confess and believe what your word says about itself, that it is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes forth and accomplishes everything that you've purposed for it to do. And it doesn't return to you empty. Therefore, when the man whom God has called assembles in the house of the Lord, where the people of God are gathered on the day which the Lord has commanded to be set apart for his worship, and the word of God is truly preached, something happens, something spiritual. Therefore, we did not come to hear a man blather, but we came in anticipation that the words of a man would somehow become in our hearts the word of God. Do that now, O Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, so there were some questions uh, after services last week uh, about what we mean by the death of self, and they were good questions, and I figure others might have similar questions, so I, I want to try and answer those by coming at things from a slightly different direction this week and see if it helps to clear things up. And so we have to, in some ways, go back to the beginning and understand what was right and then how it went wrong so that we can understand how it is that God and Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit operating in our lives, will then put the wrong things right. So when God created our first, pat our first parents and he put them in paradise, think for yourself for a minute. What do you think their inward lives were like? It's important to understand this because... What we're after here, ultimately, is the restoration of the inward state, which was the natural, unfallen state of Adam and Eve, as much as that is possible in this world. And their inward lives, I want to suggest to you, were lives of constant, joyous communion with God, and that they prayed without ceasing. That there was a, you know how you have this constant inner dialogue anyway? And sometimes you're just singing some dumb song you heard on the radio, and sometimes you're grumping about things your spouse did, and sometimes you're grumbling about the guy in traffic or your boss or dreading something at work or whatever. But you have this constant inner dialogue. Well, their constant inward dialogue was all oriented towards God and towards the work that was before them that God had given them to do, the good work that he had given them to do. And so Adam's planting daffodils, and he's like, I don't know what to do with daffodils, Lord. And the Lord says, well, why don't you put the daffodils over there? They'd look good over there. Okay. So he goes over there, and he puts the daffodils. And, and he just did the things with God 
that he was supposed to do. And so his life was a life of constant prayer. Now, how do I know that? Well, I know that uh, in a couple of different ways. Number one, it just makes sense. But, but number two, because when we look at Jesus, Jesus, we're told in the book of Romans, is the second Adam, the last Adam. So if you want to see what Adam and Eve would have looked like had they not fallen, you look at Jesus. He's the second Adam. And Jesus prayed without ceasing. Now you say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, by indirect evidence. For instance, in Luke 18.1, it says that Jesus told a parable to them, and this is the ESV, quote, that they ought to always pray and never lose heart. Now, that is kind of a weak translation of what the Greek actually says there. The Greek actually says that Jesus told them a parable to teach that they must pray constantly and never grow weary. And he told them the parable of the relentless widow and the unjust judge. They must pray constantly and not get tired. And of course, Jesus was not a hypocrite. Jesus practiced what he preached. And so we find that to be true in John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42. This is, of course, the famous scene of the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And he's standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus, and he begins to pray out loud. And the first thing he says is, God, I thank you that you have already heard me. And you say to yourself, wait, you just started praying. How can God have already heard you if you just started praying? And the reason God had already heard him is because Jesus had always been praying all along. And then he goes on to say that the verbal prayer was only for the benefit of the watching crowd and that he has a deep experiential knowledge that God constantly hears him. Check it out for yourself. It's John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42. And why does God constantly hear him? Because Jesus constantly prays. And of course, our task as Christians is to become like Jesus, who, as I said, gives us the fullest picture of what unfallen Adam was like. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that Paul then turns and tells us in two different places in his letters that our lives are to be marked by prayer without ceasing. That's in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 and Ephesians 6.18. Now, we're not going to talk about how to do that now. We will talk about that soon, but we're not going to talk about that today. But I just want you to see that our lives then are to be like Jesus, and our lives are to be marked by prayer without ceasing. So Adam and Eve were constantly chatting with God about what they and God were doing together as they worked the garden. And God was constantly supplying all of the resources that they needed to accomplish all of the tasks that he had given them. And so God would have told them which plants do better in direct sunlight and which like a little shade. He would have told them how deep to plant those bulbs. He would have told them whether this was an annual or a perennial. I still can't tell which ones are annuals and which ones are perennials. The weeds seem to be perennials. I, the, the ones I... I take the money to plant, those are the annuals, apparently. And don't we see exactly that promise made to us in the New Testament? 
that the restored life given to us through faith in Christ Jesus is one where God promises, quote, to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4.19. And that God is able to make all grace abound to us so that we will have, quote, all sufficiency in all things at all times so that we may abound in every good work. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. So we see that even today for the child of God, God promises a constant infusion of resources and power to do everything that he is asking us to do. Our lives with him are lives of complete sufficiency and dependency on him. And that is as it should be. And that is, by the way, why when somebody in your life that is supposed to be doing something that you need, like a parent or a spouse, fails you, you're not undone. You don't, I mean, you, you might act like you're undone and you might think you're undone, but you are not undone because God is able to make all things abound to you in every circumstance to accomplish everything that he has asked you to do. So behind the person who fails you is a God who will not fail you if you have confidence in him. So there was this life then in the garden of complete interactive abundance. Their lives of complete tranquility of mind. They had everything they needed because they were properly connected to God. And God's infinite abundance and power was entirely at their disposal. And so their lives in the garden were lives with no stress, with no anxiety, with no strife between husband and wife, with no lack of any kind. And then Satan comes in to destroy the works of God. And in doing so, he hit Eve with an idea. The idea that Satan introduced into Eve's mind was the idea that God could not be trusted with her well-being and she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. God lies to you, says Satan. God's not going to do for you what you think he's going to do for you. He's going to let you down, and you're going to fall. So you better look out for yourself, Eve. Go ahead and grab that fruit. That'll help. And that idea lodged in Eve's mind, and it found a home there. And she acted on that idea. Loved ones, we always act on the ideas that take hold of our minds. That's something we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. We always act on those ideas. And she took that which God had warned her not to take, that which was death for her to take, and so did her husband. And when they did that, when they decided to turn to themselves to secure their own well-being, they were instantly disconnected from God's larger power and sufficiency. It's like when you have your iPhone plugged in. You know when your battery gets really old and crummy and it lasts about like five minutes? And so you have to go around with the thing plugged in all the time? And, and you can use it fine as long as it's plugged in, but the minute it's unplugged, boy, the, you're counting down the minutes, right? Well, Adam and Eve unplugged from God and their batteries were not very good. And all of a sudden, we have a different situation, and they know they have a different situation. Now they have to rely on their own tiny power because they were no longer ruled and connected to God's greater power, and they had come under his curse. And all sorts of things now threaten them on every side. Death is in the world now. 
along with the lesser cousins of death, like injury and pain. Procreation is harder, and death haunts the woman while she's giving birth, and it haunts her child. And now when she gives birth, even to a healthy child, the situation is such that she is in a very weakened and vulnerable condition for a long time. So now both are vulnerable to evil men. And now scarcity is a given. God cursed the ground from which Adam took his food. And all of a sudden, he says, it will take a lot more work to raise a lot less food. Before the fall, they plucked their food freely from the trees. Now there are thorns and thistles. Now there are vigorous, worthless, stingy things that use up the soil when Adam tries to raise his food there by the sweat of his face. And so there's the threat of hunger or starvation. And with the inevitability of scarcity and death and injury and pain come all kinds of other problems. Envy covetousness, competition, stealing, and then murder. And what arises out of this new state of affairs is a profound and a relentless sense of anxiety and fear and vulnerability. It is always there. It is always gnawing away at them, even when they don't realize it. And Satan hits fallen humanity with the same idea that he hit Eve with, only now with the possibility of your neighbor rising up to murder you and your family and taking your food, things like that look a lot more plausible. When it was just two of them, you know, hey, all right, not that big a deal. But the minute there were four, already we've got competition and trouble, and soon there were three because one of them killed the other. So Satan said to them what he still says to us today. God cannot be trusted. You must act on your own to secure your own well-being in the world. And if you have to do things that God has said not to do in order to secure your own well-being in the world, well, you got to do what you got to do. You got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. You got to look out for number one. Nobody else is going to look out for you. You look out for you. And of course, everyone else thinks the same way. And so conflict and competition is inevitable. And what this leads to is an obsession with self. It's an obsession with self driven by this deep anxiety and fear and sense of vulnerability. And so your life looms large in your own eyes and taking care of yourself and the other selves that are key to yourself and finding some way to escape the burden of your life and the anxiety that you have about yourself takes over. Comparing yourself to other selves and gloating when the comparison is favorable or having fits of anxiety and despair when the comparison is less favorable. Fearing what will happen to yourself in old age or ugliness, or disease. All of this looms large. And you scheme with other selves, forming alliances to pursue shared goals, and then discarding those selves when your interests diverge, or another more effective self arises for you to cooperate with. And so friendships are destroyed. Families are divided. 
spouses use and discard one another. Or if you're stuck with the self and you can't get rid of the other self and you can't get rid of them, then you torment that other self that you're in a binding relationship with because they aren't meeting your expectations. You see, it hurts to be a self apart from God. It's frightening. It's lonely. It's unstable. The longer you do it, the more wounds you receive and the more wounds you dish out to other selves in the process. And you hate the selves that have wounded you, but you also know that there are other selves who hate you just as much for what you did. And so there are others who are quite ready to put a hurt on you given the chance. And it's frightening. And so your sense of self expands in importance until it, feel, it fills your whole field of vision. And it should go without saying that all of this is sin of the most destructive sort. It's actually the sin of self-worship. I am the center of my existence. I have to be because no one else will take care of me. It's self-worship. Now, here's the thing. All of this is utterly unnecessary. It's not just unnecessary. It's also utterly ineffective. You cannot secure yourself in this world. It is not possible. And the more we try, and the more systems we build into the world to try and accomplish the security of all the selves, the more neurotic and the more dysfunctional we become. That's why Jesus said you have to lose your life or yourself if, you try, if you're going to try and save it. And if you try and save yourself, your life, you're going to lose it. But here's one thing. The lie looks a lot more plausible after the fall. But the lie is still a lie. Because you actually can trust God to look after your well-being, and you do not. Indeed, under some circumstances, you must not act on your own apart from God to secure your own well-being or what you think is your well-being. So with all of that then as a background, if we see the fall of Adam and how that infected the whole human race and how Satan exploits this, this sense of vulnerability that we've now got, and how that leads to our obsession with ourselves. With all of that as, as the background, what then is self-denial or death to self? Very simply, it's the shrinking of the self back down to an appropriate size. It's the shrinking of yourself back down to the same size that Adam and Eve's selves were before the fall. What we're after in the death of self is what we might call appropriate smallness before God. It's a refusal to make yourself the ultimate point of reference in your life. Self is no longer the center of your life. Jesus is. Have you ever seen or heard of that show, Dr. Pimple Popper? How many of you heard of that? Yeah. <laughs> so apparently they, somebody started a reality show with a dermatologist that likes to squeeze nasty things out of skin. And you can go on the internet and you can see it like YouTube. It was like the top 10. So I watched it in preparation for this sermon and then I didn't eat for several days, and, um, which didn't hurt me a bit. But anyway, 
Dr. Pimple Popper is some dermatologist who deals with all these gnarly looking, huge subcutaneous infections or cysts or fatty tumors, and she'll lance or cut the skin, and then she'll start squeezing all this stuff out and all these byproducts of infection that are trapped in there. Now, if you've ever had an infection like that, like if you've ever had a boil, for instance, you know how painful that is. I, I've only had one boil in my life, and it was 15 years ago or so, and it was just below my armpit, and I don't want another one. And I lanced that sucker by myself, and I squeezed it all out one-handed, and it bled, and it hurt like the dickens. But once it was over, and once I cleaned it up, and put an antibiotic cream on it, it felt so much better. That is what self-denial, or death to self, feels like. Your swollen self is already painful. And then God comes along in Jesus Christ and he says, we're going to lance that boil. And he starts lancing that boil and then he starts squeezing all the things out that are in there that have taken over and all the sepsis and all the gross stuff that you've done and that you are and that you're becoming. And he takes it and he squeezes all that out and it hurts like the dickens when he's doing it but there's relief on the other side. Now, with that in mind, let me reintroduce a quote by Dallas Willard that I gave you last week. I think there's a slide for it. I hope there's a slide for it. And Dallas Willard says this, being dead to self is the condition where the mere fact that I do not get what I want does not surprise or offend me and has no control over me. The one who is dead to self will certainly not even notice some things that others would. For example, things such as social slights or verbal put-downs and innuendos or physical discomforts. But many other rebuffs to the dear self, as the philosopher Immanuel Kant called it, will be noticed still and often quite clearly. However, if we are dead to self in any significant degree, these rebuffs will not take control of us not even to the point of disturbing our feelings of peace of mind. We will, as St. Francis of Assisi said, wear the world like a loose garment which touches us in a few places and there lightly. Does that mean that the person who is dead to self is without feeling? Does Christ commend the famous apathy of the Stoic or the Buddhist elimination of desire? Far from it. The issue is not just feeling our desire, but right feeling our desire or being controlled by feeling and desire. Apprentices of Jesus will be deeply disturbed about many things and will passionately, passionately desire many things, but they will, largely be, they will be largely indifferent to the fulfillment of their own desires as such. Merely getting their own way has no significance to them, does not disturb them. They know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. They do not have to look out for themselves because God, and not they, is in charge of their life. They appropriately look after the things that concern them, but they do not worry about outcomes that merely affect adversely their own desires and feelings. They are free to focus their efforts on the service of God and others and the furthering of good generally and to be passionate about such things as may be appropriate to such efforts. So you see, the goal is not the annihilation of yourself. 
The goal is not inactivity and passivity in the world. The goal is not to have an opinion. You go ahead and have your opinion. Go ahead and have your desires. But if something gets in the way, you're like, oh, well, God ordained that something got in the way. No big deal. He must have something better. And I'll just take this situation to him in prayer. And when you do that, you begin putting self back in right relation to God and through God in right relation to other selves. It's not at bottom a bad thing to have a self and a will. It's a good thing. Think about it. God gave you a self. Unfallen Adam had a self and a will. Now, how do I know that? Well, because Jesus is the second Adam. And he had a self and a will. You see, having a self and a will is a part of being a creature made in the image of God. Even a horse, even a dog has some sense of self and will, right? And if you don't believe that, just leave the garbage can open with some fresh meat right up there at the top. And you'll find out about that dog's sense of self and will. And it doesn't matter how how often you've told that dog not to get into the trash can. He's going to assert his self and his will. And a good dog is one who will override his own will and submit it to yours. And a bad dog is one that does whatever he wants when you're not looking. Isn't that right? I've got two good dogs, really. The, the pit bull, if you tell her not to do something, once she understands what you don't want her to do, generally she will not do it. She wants to please you. The other one is mostly that way, unless there's chicken. And if there's chicken, all bets are off because she likes chicken, she knows that word. Chicken. You just say chicken. She's like, yes, but right here. She'll do whatever she needs to do to get chicken. All right? So she has less self-control. She does not submit herself, her will, to our wills very easily. Well, Jesus had a sense of self and a will, and we know that from the Scriptures, don't we? You see, all of the problems that arise when yourself and your will leave the position that God created them to occupy and try and occupy a position that God is meant to occupy in your life, all the problems come from that. And we see clearly in the life of Jesus that Jesus had a self and a will, and his will was distinct from the Father's will, and we know this because he told us. In John 6, 38, he says, I have not come to do my own will but to do the will of him who sent me. That's John 6, 38. So what Jesus is saying is, here's my will. Here's God's will. I did not come to do my will. I came to do God's will. And then there was at least one time where his will was quite different than God's will. When he actually did not want to do at some level what God wanted him to do. And that came at the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 39. And then again, a couple of verses later, again for a second time, he went away and he prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then in verse 44, he says those same words again. You see, three times Jesus had to, and in between he's going back to his disciples that are trying, they're supposed to be praying for him. It's the worst day of his life. And they're like, and he's like, please watch, pray. And they couldn't do it. So he's all alone. 
and this huge conflict within him. I don't like that idea of being tortured to death because I'm a man in a body, even though I'm the son of God also. And everything inside of me says, this is going to hurt. Father, if there's any way out of it, please. But if not, I'll submit my will to your will. Jesus was dead to self. And that's really the key, isn't it? The issue is not, what do I want? Nor is the issue, what does my wife want? Or what do the kids want? Or what does mom want? Or even what does my boss want? Sometimes the worst thing you can do is give somebody their own way. The issue for the person who is dead to self is always, God, what do you want me to do right now? I know what I'd like to do, and maybe that's the right thing to do, but I need you to tell me that it's okay to do what I want to do. And if it's not, I submit my will to yours. Sometimes what God wants and what you want or what your boss wants or what your husband wants are the same thing. And in those cases, you aren't losing some battle with your own dignity to give the other person what they're asking for. You're just obeying God. Sometimes what you want and what God wants are the same thing. But the way that you want to go about getting what you want is wrong and destructive. And in those cases, you have to learn how following his lead and being patient and waiting for his timing and trusting him is incredibly important. This often happens In evangelism, for instance, where we barrel ahead before God has prepared the soil. It also happens when you desire to see some important and good change in another person's life, particularly a person you're in close relationship with. And you're confident that God wants them to change too. And he probably does. But you insert yourself into that person's life in a way that is absolutely counterproductive so that you can make them change and you badger them, or you nag them, or you manipulate them, or you browbeat them, and you actually make change slower because now the person feels like, if I change, I'm giving in to that behavior, and if I give in to that behavior, there is no telling where that's going to stop, and they have a point. Because once you get encouraged by some success there, you'll be like, oh, I just need to do this more to more people in my life, and God's like, shut up. Be quiet. And so the person comes with resentment and anger. I've watched many people make change almost psychologically impossible for another person because they insist on inserting themselves where they don't belong and they won't get out of God's way and let him work. And in those cases, usually the best thing they could do would be to stop talking and to pray. Because prayer is actually the most powerful thing you can do for a person. But we're not really very experienced at prayer. We're not very good at prayer because we haven't learned how to pray. And we haven't learned how to pray because we haven't put the effort into it. We put more effort into correcting our golf swing or our free throw technique than we put into prayer and in learning to pray. And as a result, we lack confidence in prayer and we lack experience with prayer. And so we... We feel like I've got to do these things for myself. And so we begin to meddle 
and we tend to begin to take things on ourselves that we shouldn't, and we make messes instead of just going to God. But sometimes, sometimes, our will and God's will do line up absolutely perfectly. And it's wonderful. And wonderful things happen as you and God co-labor together in perfect harmony. Now, I want to close with a set of, of diagrams that hopefully will describe to you the development of that state of life and of character, because that's what we're going for. We're going for a state of life and character in which we can say, God can say, you can do whatever you want, because what you want and what I want are almost exactly the same thing. So, so look at this first diagram here. We've got two circles. We've got my will and God's will, and they're separate. And I've got a quote from an old uh, Keswick theologian and pastor named Andrew Murray. He's got a wonderful set of books on this issue. One of them is called Humility. I highly recommend it. And Andrew Murray says, we find the Christian life so difficult because we seek for God's blessing while we live it in our own will. We would be glad to live the Christian life according to our own liking. And so we have this separation here between my will and God's will. And, and there's this gap. And, and what we're saying in our, in our hearts and ourselves is, I'm afraid God will do something I don't like. I can't trust God because I'm afraid God will do something I don't like, or he will want me to do something I don't want to do. And so there's this gap there. This is a place of anxiety. It's a place of fear. It's a place of disappointment. It's a place of bitterness. It's a place of tremendous spiritual weakness, and Satan will exploit it at every opportunity. And I'll tell you what else will happen eventually if God's really got a hold of you, because when you're living this way, it's not at all clear that you're actually a Christian. You may be or you may not be. And, and when Jesus gets a hold of you, the first thing he's going to do is do something you don't want so that he can show you that it's not the end of the world when he does something that you don't want him to do. And that's why some people say, well, if you follow Jesus long enough, he'll disappoint you. Because as long as you think, I've got to keep God from doing things that I don't want him to do, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. So this is a place of, of terrible, this is a terrible place to live. And a lot of people, a lot of professing Christians live right here their whole lives. But at some point, by the power of God, the grace of God, sometimes the penny begins to drop and you begin a process of surrender. And so you still have your will over here and God still has his will over here, but now they're moving close together and there's this tiny overlap. And you say to yourself, I am going to learn how to let God be God. I am going to learn how to have confidence in God's goodness and in God's power. I am going to learn by experience that he can be trusted. One of the places this often starts is with trusting completely the truth of the Scriptures and then submitting yourself to that and saying, okay, what can I do? What do the Scriptures say that I can do that I can just obey and find out that God is right? And sometimes it's those little things like I gave you last week, like, like not complaining or like finding little ways to deny yourself and just see what happens. And you find out, if I don't stop complaining, if I, if, I if I stop complaining, the world doesn't fall apart. Because you really think at some level, 
All these things are being duct taped together by my complaints. The whole world's out there going, boy, you know, we'd like to do X, Y, and Z, but she'll complain about it, or he'll complain about it, so we don't. And to some extent, that happens, right? And so we think, if I just whine a lot, that'll hold the whole thing together, and God says no. And he starts undoing the whole thing. But you, you, you begin to learn. You begin to learn somehow. It's a dynamic process. You can't just say there's a formula for it. But you begin to learn that God can be trusted. And you begin to submit your will to his will. Now turn over. <clears throat> As that happens more and more, you begin to mature. And you can eventually come to the place where you have abandoned your sense of self and your need to control your environment and your need to control everything that happens around you and the need to control you. And you begin to say, okay, I can surrender. I can trust that God's will is a good thing. And I can surrender my will to God's will. Now, this is a, <clears throat> this is a place of tremendous blessing. This is a place of growth. And Dallas Willard says, Typically, at this point, surrender now covers all the circumstances of life, not just the truth about God and His explicit will or commandments for human beings given through the Bible. So this is the place you go when your child dies, and you say, I don't know how to live, Lord. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will, and you just have a broken heart inside of God's will, and God says, right now my will for you is just to have a broken heart and it's okay. This is where you go when the divorce happens. This is where you go when disease strikes. This is where you go when all of the horrible things that can happen in the world happen, and Satan sits back and says, see, I told you you had to look out for number one. They screwed you over. And you say, God, I'm at rest and content in you. There was a, an old medieval saint, Teresa of Avila, and she was imprisoned for a period of time because they were suspicious of her doctrinal views during the Spanish Inquisition. And she just sat in the prison and sang, wrote little poems to Jesus, just content that Jesus had put her in prison for a period of time. This is a place of tremendous power and peace. But there is yet another step. And it's hard to map it out, but I did the best I could. We've got God's will and my will, and God's will is huge, and my will is small, and my will is inside of the yellow highlighting of God's will. This is the place where you don't merely say, all right, Lord, I'm going to gut this out with you. This is the place where you begin to say, I delight in you, and I wouldn't have my life any other way than how you've arranged it. I am not just at rest in you, I am happy that my life is as it is. Johnny Erickson Tata lives here, I think. And she talks about how it was God's will for her to be paralyzed in that horrible accident as a teenager. She dived into a, a, a lake or a, some body of water and hit her head and broke her neck on a rock that was submerged. She's paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of her life. And she talks about getting to the place where she says, God, as rough as it's been, I would not have my life any other way than the way you have orchestrated it. It has been painful, but the pain has wrought peculiar beauties and blessings in me. 
Dallas Willard once again says, <clears throat> beyond contentment lies intelligent, energetic participation in accomplishing God's will in our world. We are no longer spectators, but are caught up in a vivid and eternal drama in which we play an essential part. We embrace our imposed circumstances, no matter how tragic they seem, and act for the good in a power beyond ourselves. Our tiny willpower is not the source of our strength. We are carried along by the power of the divine drama within which we, actively, we, all, we live actively engaged. This is the place where you can begin to pray and see answers to prayer that would have just been impossible three or four years before. This is the place where you begin to, to walk with God so closely that, that like Elijah, you could say, Lord, let's just make it not rain here for a while. And God says, all right, you say it, I'll do it. And Elijah says, no more rain. And God says, turns the switch off. And then he comes to Ahab and he says, all right, God, more, more rain now. After we've had this showdown with the prophets of Baal and we've showed that you are indeed the God who brings the rain and the crops and everything else and Baal is a false God. After we've shown your people who you are, turn the lights back on, turn the rain switch back on. And God says, all right, Elijah, you said it. I'll do it. It's a place of the most fruitful cooperation with God. That is what you and I are after. And at that point, there's never any time where God would say no to you. Unless he has just, because you have a lack of information and he has more information, he might say, wait a minute, we got a better one here. Hold on. But this is the place where God just does what you ask because it's safe to do so. This is a place of tremendous power. That's where we're trying to get to, folks. Do you see how this is a, a, such a more expansive vision than the idea of just praying a prayer and then hanging around and waiting to die and go to heaven? That is just the, the least attractive thing, re representation of the Christian life I can possibly think of. Why would you want to just do that? Why would you peddle that as the gospel when God says, come and walk with me and I will make you a wonder beside me if you will just work the process with me? Why would you want to do anything other than that? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, and Father, if I have said anything wrong or unhelpful this morning, cause it to be forgotten. And if I have said anything right and good and true, cause that arrow to go home and cause it to sink in deep and cause those ideas to cling in our minds and let us become something more than what we are now. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it.